Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out on a Friday. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing with your Friday night, and this was not a, a planned service or anything, so it's uh, quite an honor for you to, to, uh, to come out to hear about such an important topic, in my opinion. I've dedicated a lot of time to social justice and what it means for Christianity that this movement has taken root in evangelical denominations and organizations. Uh, this isn't something I planned to do with my life. I didn't wake up one day and think, man, I'm going to start writing books and, and do podcasts on the topic of social justice. I mean, I, I kind of needed that, like, you know, like I need a, a, you know, someone to punch me in the face. It just, it's not something that people usually want to talk about. It's very controversial. Um, it, it certainly got me in a lot of hot water uh, in some circles, especially the Southern Baptist Convention where uh, I went to school, actually, at Southeastern, which is a Southern Baptist seminary. And, uh, but it's also, I've seen so many blessings from this. I've seen so much fruit. I've seen people uh, push back against this, come to the realization that this is a false religion. That's my whole thesis, really, is that social justice is a false religion that competes with Christianity, that mimics Christianity, that tries to supplant Christianity. And, and so I want to argue that today. I have about 45 minutes, uh, to, and then we're going to go for some Q&A. So as I'm talking, if there's questions that come to your mind, please just save those, and I'd love to address them as best I can. Um, during the Q&A time, and if not, maybe even afterward. Uh, I do have some books, uh, as it was mentioned on the back table. I usually, and there's a DVD too, um, Enemies Within the Church, which just came out. And so uh, I usually ask $15 for the books. There's some little descriptions there on what they're about. Uh, if you don't have $15, please just take one. Uh, I just want people to have the resources. That's the purpose of, of why I wrote them. So again, uh, just a, a, a pleasure to be here, and uh, the music w- was amazing, by the way. That was really just well done. Um, I've been traveling around this country now for a few months. We, we actually just came from Arizona, and we, I've just been, uh, the 10,000 reasons that we talk about in that song, I mean, I've just seen more and more reasons the more I just drive across the country, just the beauty that's out there. We, we live in such a, an amazing place. And San Diego, by the way, you, you live in in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places in all of this country, um, especially today. It's just very, very nice out there. And so, um, so anyway, I, I've just been enjoying that. And I want, on that note, I want to read for you a quote uh, from Samuel Adams, one of our founding fathers of the United States. And, and, and I want to start here because the issues of critical race theory, social justice, neo-Marxism, Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, the climate change movement, I mean, whatever iteration of social justice we're talking about, this is something that's on the radar of uh, political uh, organizations and and personalities as well. I mean, they're talking about this. I mean, how many of you, uh, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but if you know the term critical race theory, if you've heard that before, I'm just kind of curious. How many of you have heard of this? Like, okay, most of you, right? And it probably wasn't from a Christian publication. You probably heard about it in your newspaper or on the news or, or somewhere out there. And it, it actually was part of the presidential debates uh, about a year and a half ago. That, that term came up, which before that was kind of only nerds talk about that. But now it's mainstream. Now we're all talking about that. And, and so this is not just something that's this is bigger than just what's happening in the church. But I think what's happening in the church is the most important thing. This is the most important institution that's being threatened. So I want to start kind of big picture here, though, just... Um, Look, looking at our country, looking at what's happening to our country over the last few years, listen to this quote from Samuel Adams, one of our founding fathers. He said this, and this, and this is prophetic. He said, A general dissolution of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of the common enemy. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. 
But when once they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. What's he saying? He's saying that as long as America is good, and this was understood in a Christian context, as long as morality, virtue, was part of the fabric of our country, then we could still have self-government. We wouldn't have to have the government coming in to make sure that people treat each other fairly because we'd already be doing it. We would be treating each other right, we'd be taking responsibility, and we could have self-government. And the government, uh, the central authority, would not have to be so powerful. Well, once public morality breaks down, something's going to come in to fill that vacuum. People are going to scream for order. And, and what we're seeing the last few years, I'd like to suggest, is a breakdown of public morality, a public virtue. And why is that? Well, it's because of a breakdown in churches. And, a, and as secularism rises, uh, Christianity diminishes. That's what secures public virtue. And the founders understood this. And I could read you a lot more, more quotes Uh, Let me just read for you one. This is from John Quincy Adams, is a a president of our country. He said, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Now, I'm not here to give you a rah, rah, rah America speech or anything like that. It's not close to to my purpose. The only reason I bring this up is just to point out the fact that what's happening in the church is happening in every other institution around us. It's happening in sports. Uh, It's happening in the government, in our entertainment industry, in education. Uh, It's happening in knitting clubs. I mean, it's really getting down to very basic local institutions that uh, and voluntary associations that we've been part of. Some of us maybe going back generations. Our parents have been part of, you know, like the Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout, and and we're seeing the similar attacks, similar corruption, similar breakdown. And I think the social justice movement is a manifestation of this. I think it encourages it, but it also needs that kind of corruption to even, to even work. Because basically, when you peel back all the onion layers, the social justice movement is a, a complicated way of justifying covetousness, stealing, lying, slandering, all, all these things that Christianity has always been against. And all of a sudden, you can do them if you do them in the name of the revolution. If you do them in the name of something that can be morally uh, acceptable, social justice, then all of a sudden these, these vices become virtues. And they're not virtues. And so uh, the solution it has been before us the whole time. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's getting back to the principles that Jesus taught us. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. It's all the things that we as Christians hold dear. We have the solution for what our country needs and we also have the solution for what the falling evangelical church needs. And it's, it's found in the pages of this book. And, so, and that's my firm belief. So, um, you know a little bit about how I'm approaching this. I want to bring you through now, though, a definition of social justice. And I, and I want to take you on a journey through history so we can understand and properly identify this at the end. That's my goal. And then I'm going to bring you through a little bit of the social justice philosophy. What is it underneath the hood that social justice is assuming? What's it teaching, especially to young people who are going to college and getting their heads filled with this kind of stuff? What, 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 how does it contradict Christianity? My, my thesis is that it's a religion, and I want to sh- demonstrate that to you. And then, of course, uh, the answer, which I've already hinted at, w- w- is Christianity. How do we challenge this movement? So starting off, a definition of social justice. The modern social justice movement is a repackaged configuration of egalitarian ideas. Now, I'm going to stop there. 
Egalitarian just means equality. It's the term, it's, it's a French word for equality. I use that term because it's taken on a definition today associated with the French Revolution. It traces back to the French Revolution. Uh, it's not the equality that Americans have traditionally cherished, which is equality before the law. It's a different kind of e- equality. It's an equality of outcome between social groups. In other words, no disparities existing. Uh, one group of people shouldn't have more stuff than another group of people. They shouldn't have access to certain things that other groups of people don't have access to, right? We need a flat playing field where everyone has the same opportunities, the same access, the same outcome, the same everything. And, and so that's, that's what I mean when I talk about egalitarianism. But, but this is what the modern social justice movement is, a repackaged configuration of egalitarian ideas influenced over the past century by postmodern and Marxist derivatives. Its purpose is to rectify disparities and advantages between social groups through reallocation. Now, I know that sounds uh, like, like a mouthful, but as we go through this, we're going to return to that definition, and I think it's going to make a lot of sense. So let's start here. Um, the social justice tradition that we're talking about, uh, as the term social justice signifies, really starts during the French Revolution. And in my book, in the back, the red one, Christianity and Social Justice, I trace this all out. The term social justice wasn't used, though. It, really, the, the concept is redistributive justice. That is, when we talk about social justice, we're talking about redistributive justice. There's always some kind of a mechanism where um, one group of, of people needs to take their stuff or their influence or that, their platforming or their privilege, and they need to redistribute it to another group of people. That's always going to be in there, no matter what iteration of social justice we're talking about, whether it's the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement or the queer theory and LGBT movements or... You pick which movement you want. So redistributive justice is is where we're going to start here. And the thinker that I think we need to focus on is a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was the father of the French Revolution. And he proposed three things. And these three principles carry through every social justice iteration. Number one, achieving an egalitarian idea. Achieving an egalitarian ideal. So In other words, instead of, as Christians believe, there's going to be a heavenly state after we die and everything's going to be perfect, all the tears are going to be wiped away, justice is going to be done, true justice, there's none of that. That, 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 That's a pipe dream. This this is fit for more secular people. We are not thinking about an afterlife or the eternal realm. We need justice in this realm. And so we need to work together to achieve this egalitarianism. Now, in order to do that, number two... We need to dismantle social institutions that prevent its achievement. So what would those be? Church, family, certain labor relationships, could be the Girl Scouts. I mean, it really could be just about anything, but it's specifically institutions that have hierarchies involved in them. So think about the church for a moment. You have pastors, you have elders. You actually go to them with decisions in your life because you know that they have wisdom that you might not have. They've been in the scriptures, and you grant to them some measure of authority, right? They're pastors. Uh, well, that's not fair. I mean, there's a hierarchy there, right? They're, they, they're up here. You're down here. You're, you're ceding to them some kind of influence. Um, how about families, right? Generations of parents passing down their wealth to their children, and their children pass it down to their children. I mean, is it fair that some families have more than others and they, they uh, conserve that wealth? I mean, the, these kinds of things are what make for inequalities. And, and, and inequality means things aren't equal. So that's just some examples of, of what a social institution that prevents egalitarianism from taking root would be. And so number three would be implementing a force capable of executing 
this utopian dream of an egalitarian society. So number one, achieving an egalitarian ideal. Number two, dismantling social institutions that prevent its achievement. And number three, implementing a force capable of executing the utopian dream. Now, what's that, that third thing? What's that force that's going to uh, be executed to, to make this utopian dream come true? Well, it's the government. The government becomes God. And that's what we're seeing. That's what over the last two years we've seen. Where do we cry? Who do we cry to when something bad happens? The government. Who's going to save us? The government's going to save us, right? Um, who do we, we, we attribute uh, non-communicable attributes of deity to? We, we, God-like attributes. The government. They can't be questioned, right? Can't question Anthony Fauci, right? Can't question what they're saying. So, so this is the kind of thing that's been taking root over the last few years. And, and really think about this for a moment. In the name of equality, the social justice activists have created the biggest disparity ever to exist in the history of man, an all-powerful, godlike federal government up here, and then the individual with nothing to protect them, no church, no family, no voluntary association. It's just the individual and the government. So in the name of let's bash all the, the bullies on the street who are preventing equality from happening, we've just created the biggest bully imaginable. And that big bully has the, the potential to enslave all of us in, in a very impersonal state. So that's where social justice leads. I think we're seeing that. I think that's the story of the 20th century. And whatever iteration of this, whatever version of this is out there, whether it's Marxism, uh, communism in the 20th century, whether it's the social gospel movement, whether it's the modern movements, uh, identity politics, BLM, all that, it, it carries through those three principles. That's how you know it's a social justice movement. Now, some history uh, of some of these different versions of social justice. Uh, the first one, and the most identifiable one, is communism. Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848. During that year, there were communist revolutions all across Europe. And many of the people who went through those revolutions, because those revolutions failed, ended up in the United States. They fled Europe, and they settled mainly in the Midwest. And a lot of them, ironically, became uh, newspapermen and formed newspapers. And so if you wonder where the liberal media came from, that's a really good place to start. So Karl Marx's idea was that the reason things aren't equal, the, the thing preventing equality, egalitarian equality from taking root, is the fact that some people have stuff and other people don't. And we just need to redistribute stuff. We need to take from the rich and give to the poor, right, on a mass scale and create a mechanism for this. And so what he suggested was the uh, abolition of all what he called bourgeois property, the rich people and their property, just abolish it. Number two, um, he said that the state should control credit, transportation, and production, as well as provide free public education. And many of you might not know, that is a Marxist concept. Free public education has not always been the status quo. That is, that's a fairly new idea. And so he thought if these things took place, we'd have equality finally. We'd reach the dream. Some people wouldn't have more than other people. Problem was, the revolution never really happened. Uh, Marx said that this was inevitable. It was just going to happen. It never really happened. And so another thinker came along named Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian Marxist. And he said, you know, the reason that's not happening is because the workers are actually being controlled by the propertied class through imposed values. So this inequality wasn't to be found in economics, it was actually to be found in culture. This is cultural Marxism. 
And he identified things like libraries, schools, voluntary associations, architecture, street names, and the church as, the, as institutions and features that prevented equality from taking place. Um, and, and so some of this stuff actually probably might have some of you thinking about the, and I don't know if it happened here as much, but back east it sure, sure did, the whole anti-monument craze, which is still going on, by the way. There's still uh, monuments to the founding fathers that are in threat. I remember before we left Virginia last year, um, there was a historical commission that said that Virginia needed to rename Thomas Jefferson High School and Patrick Henry High School, and I mean, everything around me was being renamed, even lakes. I mean, things, you know, like a lake that I didn't even realize was tied to some, like a Confederate soldier or something. I had no clue, but, you know, it's renamed now. Well, this kind of thing um, is, the reason this is happening is to be found in really Gramsci's ideas. This is cultural Marxism. It's the idea that people are oppressed without knowing it. They're oppressed because when they go down the street, they see that street name, and that means that someone's ancestors are being platformed, are being honored, and other people's ancestors aren't being. It means that some people get monuments built to them and and other people don't. It means that some people uh, are called pastor and reverend and other people don't have those same privileges. Some people write the books that go into our libraries And they're popular and people read them and other people don't have books because their cultures haven't written as many books. I mean, all of these things are where true inequality is found. It's not economics, it's all cultural. And so he created a strategy which has been titled The Long March Through the Institutions in which Marxists, instead of an immediate revolution in which they would take the money from one group and give it to another, they would make their way through the different institutions of society, the media, education, and now the church, and the arts, and all, all of these institutions, and they would exert their control through these institutions. They would take them over, convert them into engines and, and mechanisms for this egalitarian change, and they would build what he called their own hegemony, their own uh, hierarchy, which was different than the hierarchies around them. They would, they would flip it. And so the people who are oppressed, according to the sociologists, would now be the rulers, right? And this was just fair. Well, that brings us to critical theory, all right? People have heard of critical race theory. This is the forerunner of that. And the Frankfurt School in Germany took this idea of cultural Marxism, and they just drilled down even deeper. They wanted to identify all the little things in culture that caused oppression. And one of them, I I like to bring this example up. I could bring a lot, but one of them is called the F-scale. Theodore Adorno was one of the Frankfurt School members. And he wrote a book in 1950, a psychology book called The Authoritarian Personality. And this is just one example of how critical theory works. In this book, he suggested that traits such as submission to parental authority, um, belief in traditional gender roles, family pride, a fear of homosexuality, a strong devotion to Christianity, and the notion that foreign ideas posed a threat to American institutions signaled, quote, Implicit pre-fascist tendencies. So let me summarize it for you. If you love your parents and you love your country, you're a little Nazi. That's what he's saying. And this became extremely popular in the 1960s. Psychologists would use this tool, the F-scale, to help people who would come to them and say, I got this problem with my parents or with my children. Or, and they would, they would ask a series of questions and they'd identify where you fit on the F-scale. You say, well, you know, to this degree, you're kind of a fascist, actually. That's your problem here. And, and this became very popular in psychology departments. Well, in the last few years, this has just gone mainstream. That's all it is. It's existed in the academy for decades. But anyone to the right of Bernie Sanders now is a Nazi. 
Well, how did that happen? It's because that academics have been thinking this way for decades. And what's unusual maybe to the ears of working class people has been the common parlance of the higher academic circles. Well, the last thing we need to address before going to critical race theory is radical subjectivity. And I'd like to suggest this is also a form of Marxism. Postmodernism to me is just Marxism. It's just Marxism applied to areas like knowledge, uh, words. It becomes a little more abstract, but I'll give you some examples that uh, I think will, will help make sense of this. Um, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault are the, the two most identifiable French deconstructionists. Uh, in other words, they're postmodernists. They're philosophers who believe in postmodernism. And, and to Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, there's no such thing as objective truth or objective reality. Everything is just a power play. Everything, every, every bit of knowledge you have, every, the words you use, they're just a result of one group trying to oppress an, or dominate another group. That's all it is. And Derrida himself said that what he was doing was Marxism, just applying Marxism to the realm of ideas, language, and concepts. And so let me give you an example of this. Derrida was the one who uh, believed that there was a hegemony of language. There was this, this uh, intricate web of, of uh, ideas woven into language that was essentially controlled by the ruling class, this hegemony. And they imposed their values through the words they used. So let me give you an example of this. Has anyone in this room used this oppressive word, woman? Have you ever called anyone a woman? Everyone's a bigot, Okay. So, or a man, you ever said that one? You're, not, you're getting trouble for that today. You call someone that, right? Or use a pronoun like he or she. Well, in, in, in Derrida's world, there's really no objective meaning to he, she, male, female, uh, terms like man, woman. There's nothing objective rooted in reality in a created order like Christians believe. Instead, it's just people and people groups who have agendas that will benefit them. And some of them want to impose this idea that there's a fixed male and female, binary thinking, okay? And, and, and so they're, in, they're, they're actually trying to colonize you. They're taking their ideas and they're forcing them on you when they try to fit you into their mold, as if you're a man or a woman, when you should be able to decide those kinds of things. That's not for them to decide. They're a bunch of bullies coming at you and telling you what to think. That's how they think. Now, there's an Achilles heel to this we're going to get to, because it's very self-refuting, but... Uh, but this is what they taught, that basically language and meaning themselves were subject to Marxist analysis, that there's certain groups of people warring with other groups of people, this kind of class conflict, cultural conflict, and some groups are trying to dominate other groups with the way that they tell history and stories and use words. That brings us to critical race theory. Critical race theory was uh, initiated by a law professor at Harvard named Derek Bell, and Derek Bell believed that progress in American race relations was a mirage, that the whole ending slavery thing and ending segregation, meaningless, didn't mean a thing, because right now there is a system which accrues benefits to people who have white privilege, okay? So nothing really has changed in America. In fact, um, this has been carried by some Christian authors, quote-unquote, Jamar Tisby being one in his book, The Color of Compromise, his whole thesis is racism never goes away, it just changes forms. Never goes away. Pretty dis discouraging thought in a way, right? Why, why even write a book on it if it just never goes away? But that's the whole thesis. It's just always around, always lurking in the shadows. If you can't see it, it's because you're not looking or because your privilege is blinding you. And so Derek Bell said that the only way to address racism is by first interpreting the world through the lens of minority experience. So if you're white, shut up. 
You have nothing to contribute to the conversation. You haven't experienced oppression. Therefore, you, you, can't, you can't take this thing. You can't take the Bible, and you can't just find out what God says about it because you're blinded. You need someone to explain it to you who's been oppressed. That's the whole idea behind this. And so um, sometimes, uh, maybe if we have time later on, we'll go through this. I'll go through the seven different principles of critical race theory, but I usually boil them down into really two things. There's a Marxist element and there's a postmodern element, right? And postmodernism really is a form of Marxism. So the Marxist element is this. You have the oppressors and the oppressed, right? And everything's binary. Everything uh, is, you're, you fit into one of these categories that the sociologists have given to us, the critical race theorists. And that, that encapsulates pretty much all of reality. And then you have this idea that the oppressed can have, a, have access into truth that other people do not have. So it's Gnosticism. You have to go to the priests. You have to go to the holy books. And those holy books and those priests are minority experiences. But it's not actually really minorities. It's the academics who say they represent minorities. So it's, it's, it's their, what they say, they use sometimes the oppressed people in their minds as human shields for their own agendas. But that's essentially what critical race theory is. Now, attached to this is something called intersectionality. And this was developed by one of Derrick Bell's students, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. She's still alive. And what she said was that uh, identity politics failed to take into account the existence of groups with more than one socially oppressed identity factor. So in other words, you have people who have perhaps a disability, as well as they're a racial minority, as well as perhaps they're a woman. And they have multiple identities of oppression. So they need unique political representation in order to deal with that, because someone like that could not just go to, let's say, Black Lives Matter, because Black Lives Matter is not going to represent them. They need the feminists to represent them. They need people who speak out for disabled people to represent them. And so what she was doing here was building another hierarchy. So if you look at it this way, critical race theory is a tool of destruction or deconstruction. Let's critique everything out there and show how it's horrible. It's, it's racist, it's attached or connected to some kind of racism, it's terrible, it's on the McDonald's menu, it's at Disneyland, it's, it probably is at Disneyland, uh, but it's everywhere, right? Uh, you, you, you just can't escape it, and you need to be careful of it, and you need to watch for it, you need to oppose it. Well, intersectionality is a tool of construction. It's basically saying, now this is how we rebuild our society. We take the people who are the most oppressed, and we give them the most representation, we give them the most privilege. We listen to them the most. They have the most insights. So it's created a race to the bottom. Everyone wants to be oppressed now. Everyone has hang-ups from their past because, ironically, that gives them privilege. Um, I mean, it could even be like a gluten allergy. I can say that. My brothers have celiac. So. But it could, be, it could be little things that cause you to be, a, to, to, uh, be on this intersectional scale where, man, I, I have some oppression. So therefore, you've got to listen to me. You've got uh, to give me stuff, right? And that's where we are now. Now, the goal of all of this, and this is a bold claim, I want to support it, but the goal of all of this, in my mind, is to destroy Orthodox Christianity. I think if you go to conservative political pundits, they'll tell you this is an attack on white people or an attack on Western civilization or an attack on men or heterosexuals. There's some truth to that. I think behind all of that, though, is actually an attack on the created order that God has designed. It's an attack on the creator, and specifically, the, the true creator represented in Christianity. Let me read for you some quotes. Karl Marx, he said, The social principles of Christianity preach the necessity of a ruling and oppressed class. In other words, he's saying Christianity has hierarchy involved. There's going to be some people who are rulers and some people who are followers. 
He says, the proletariat's not like this, though. They're revolutionary. Antonio Gramsci, who we just talked about, said that he wanted socialism to, quote, kill Christianity, unquote, and replace any charitable relationship between the privileged and unprivileged classes with class solidarity and world domination. Michel Foucault desired to liberate people from political rationality, which he believed stood on the idea of Christian pastoral power. Now, it's not enough just to get rid of Christianity. You have to replace it with something. Let me read you a few quotes. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, the Christian law was harmful to the constitution of a state. Instead, he imagined a religion that would one day make a revolution among men. H.G. Wells Uh, Now, he was a Fabian socialist. Fabian socialists were English socialists who believed that, uh, we call it progressivism in this country, but that we could get the revolution going through um, intermediate steps, through through a a long, it's really the long march through the institutions. And so H.G. Dwell was part of the Fabian Society. He wrote books like The War of the Worlds. There's movies about it, The Time Machine. Anyone ever seen that? So he said this. He said that in a book called The Open Conspiracy, that a... Utopian cooperative uh, would replace economic, traditional, religious, familial, and national loyalties. And he proclaimed it will, quote, be a world religion, unquote. Now, in 1940, he updated the term for the open conspiracy, and this is the term he gave to it, not my term. He called it the New World Order. That was his term. And that term now has been used by several global elites to describe what they want to do. Today, it's most commonly called the Great Reset. There's a trajectory here. There's a history here. I could read for you a lot of quotes. Let me just give you one more. Derek Bell, since we talked about him, the father of critical race theory, he thought that fundamentalist Christians divert political protest and reaffirm the conservative value on which the white middle class's traditional illusions of superiority are grounded. Nevertheless, he also saw a new interpretation of Christianity his term. And he said that that could lead to enlightenment instead of pacification. In other words, there's a place for religion, but just not the Christian religion, not the traditional Christian religion, not Orthodox Christianity, but this is a religion. The crafters of social justice, the founding fathers of social justice knew what they were doing was religious. And so when people object that why are you bringing politics into the pulpit, I'm not bringing politics into the pulpit. It's politics that's coming into the church and getting involved in issues which should not be their concern. They're the ones engaging in religion, and we have to understand that. Michael Tracy, a secular reporter, said in 2020, he said, I'm telling you, every protest I've been to so far, these are the Black Lives Matter protests, perfectly mirrors an outdoor evangelical Christian worship service. Think back to Kente Cloth, and remember the, some of the congressional leaders kneeling during, for the amount of time George Floyd was on the ground. Think about um, groups of people uh, kneeling before and almost like they're praying to Black Lives Matter protesters, reenacting the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. So what we have in the modern social justice movement is a religion. And instead of the bad news in Christianity being original sin, because we all have it, and there's a divine law we've broken— and we're going to come under judgment from God, social justice has its own version of original sin. Whiteness, maleness, heterosexuality. They have their own divine law. It's called political correctness. Equity, inclusion, diversity. If you break these principles, you are guilty, and then the judgment is getting canceled. Not in the afterlife, this side 
of heaven because there is no afterlife. They have their own missions organizations. We could really consider most of education to be that at this point. They have decolonization, implicit bias training, activism. They have their own hierarchy, their prophets, the critical theorists, their priests, the media, their clergy, community organizers. They have their own saints, the victims of police shootings. It doesn't matter what they did in their life, they're now a saint. You can't question their character. There's so many things that parallel Christianity in this new religion. They have their own canon, their woke books, their perspectives that cannot be questioned. And if you do, you're a racist or you're a sexist or homophobic. We've seen the same thing come out in the COVID religion. Salvation is vaccination. The sacraments are masks, social distancing, lockdowns, and booster shots. Proselytizing, public service announcements, social media virtue signals. The membership in the religion is the vaccine card. By the way, I've heard that you don't do it down here. I was just in Los Angeles last night, and I went to a Planet Fitness, and they asked me for that. And then they wouldn't let me in unless I had one. (laughs) I was a little surprised. I didn't go off on them and say, you're part of another religion, but I was thinking it. The heathens are the unvaccinated. The heretics are the anti-vax conspiracy theorists. The high priests are Anthony Fauci and government health officials. God is government and the Savior is science. It's a religion. It's a religion. And in each iteration of this, the government always takes more power, becomes more like a deity, more like a god, and the individual gets smaller, and the family gets smaller, and the church gets smaller. So let's review the definition of social justice. The modern social justice movement is a repackaged configuration of egalitarian ideas heavily influenced over the past century by postmodern Marxist derivatives, and its purpose is to rectify disparities and advantages between social groups through reallocation. The goals are achieving an egalitarian ideal, dismantling social institutions that prevent its achievement, and implementing a force capable of executing the utopian dream. Colossians 2.8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Unfortunately, with every iteration of this, we've seen Christians try to syncretize, try to blend social justice thinking with Christianity. We have saw it in the social gospel movement, the German Christian movement in Nazi Germany, liberation theology, the progressive evangelicalism of the 60s and 70s, and today with the woke church. This is nothing new. This, is, this has been happening for over a century. And I think the best way that I can point out the problems, the differences between Christianity, stark differences in social justice, is to identify the three major fields of philosophy that social justice, that, 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 um, that really categorize the assumptions behind the social justice movement. So, We're going to talk about metaphysics. Metaphysics is uh, the branch of philosophy concerned with what is in reality, what exists out there, what is reality made up of. of. We're going to talk about epistemology briefly. That's uh, questions like what is truth? How do we know truth? How do we find truth? And then ethics, right and wrong, okay? So what is reality? How do we know truth? And then what's right and wrong? How does social justice approach these questions? in relationship or in contrast to how Christianity approaches them. Well, first, social justice uh, operates based on ideology. Let me give you a quick definition. Ideology is a rationalistic closed system of thought 
designed to explain all of human behavior through simple precepts. It's kind of like this, and I'm not recommending the movie, but if anyone's ever seen The Matrix, there's a character who is in computer world. He doesn't know that they're in computer world because it looks like reality, but really everything's just a bunch of ones and zeros. That's computer world. And he, he thinks he's walking down the street, but really it's just a very sophisticated machine that's, implement, that's implanting thoughts in his mind. Social justice is a little bit like that. Ideology is a little bit like that. Everything in reality is flattened into ones and zeros. There's oppressed people and there's oppressors. And this is everything in society basically gets broken down into one of these two qualities based on whether or not the revolution is being advanced. So if you're a person who just wants to be neutral, that's not an option. Um, it, it, it's not even just people, though. It's everything. It's, it, like I said, it could be the McDonald's menu. It's, I mean, we're, we're seeing things like, uh, and I have actual articles and examples in my book about this, but things like beards, I kid you not, beards are racist. Um, uh, farmers markets are racist. Classical music is racist. According to very smart people, right? People that have Ivy League degrees. Man, you couldn't pay me <laughs> uh, enough. I, I mean, I just can't even believe people that make as much money as these people make are able to say some of these things. But that's what ideology teaches you. That's how it makes you think. Everything gets broken down into a one or a zero and categorized that way. And this is very dangerous. Uh, what this does is it destroys social trust by presuming guilt on any human activity not advancing the agenda. It requires immediate, drastic, and often forceful solutions, and it reorients the purpose of life towards political activism, because it's a religion. All of life becomes about making sure that the bad guys lose, the good guys win, and there is no neutrality, there's no middle ground, there's no... Uh, there's, I mean, you, you put on a red sock or a blue sock that morning when you're getting dressed. There's no neutrality there. I mean, you're, you're, you're picking a side when you make these little decisions. Now, a few things to, to just in response to this way of thinking, uh, because I've seen people, friends of mine, even go down this track. Christians, even. People who are raised in the church, and they start, their, their minds become diseased as they go down this, and they start fitting everything into these categories, and, and they're miserable people, to be quite frank with you, because they're just seeing oppression everywhere. It's like the CSI, if everyone's seen that show. You know, you walk in with the light to see where the blood stains are. Where did the murder happen? Well, look, everything's blood. Everything's, I just see it everywhere. That's kind of how life becomes. Every, you just see oppression everywhere. You can't even enjoy life anymore. So ideology makes human worth second to political activism. You, you don't even see people anymore. Everyone's just reduced to some impersonal thing. Just one little aspect of you makes you an oppressor and nothing else matters. You're an oppressor now. Ideology fails to take into account the full spectrum of the created order. What the, the flavor, the beauty, all the true diversity God has baked into creation gets missed and, and, and ignored. Now, there are ways, and this is the way that I think Christians would respond and think differently about this. There are ways in which people are similar. Okay, we're made in the image of God, accountable to God, subject to the law of God, in need of salvation. If we're redeemed, we are all part of the church. So these are ways in which we can actually have social trust. We can actually have something in common with one another. And there's ways in which we're different that God created, right? Different genders, Matthew 19, created us male and female, different cultures, geographies, races. Acts 17 talks about this. We have different abilities, according to uh, to, to, the, to the Word of God, um, and, and also that would uh, go into spiritual gifts as well. There's diversity there. 
Uh, We have different hierarchical positions. The Apostle Paul talks about this. And so there's differences between us, and there's also things that we share in common. There's some complexity there, isn't there? So think about yourself, where you were born, the things that make you you, the hobbies you have, the interests you have, most importantly, your relationship with Jesus Christ, the family traditions that you have. I mean, all these things make you a unique, important person, and the Lord put you here for such a time as this. He knows who you are. He knows every hair on your head. That refutes ideology. There's no room for you're just an oppressor. No one's just anything. You're a complicated human being, and you're made in the image of God, ultimately. Now, one of the questions that I think would be good to ask, there's many of them, but I want to give you one. And you're going to have to think about this. I'll repeat it. Could the motives of social justice activists be connected to a desire to oppress? I'll repeat that. Could the motives of social justice activists be attached or connected to a desire to oppress? Now, why would I ask that? Because if everything in reality has a label on it that says, that gives it a, a, a measure of oppression quality, if everything is oppression, everything is power, everything is domination, what about the idea that everything is power, domination, and oppression? You see, social justice activists give themselves an exemption. They don't get to be part of this. They're outside of all of that oppression. But if they were going to be consistent, they are part of reality as well, and they have to apply their own standard to themselves. The thoughts that they have in their mind are also part of the fabric of oppression, if everything is part of that. So how can they know that they're not imposing their oppressed values through their own minds? That's the self-refutation of ideology. And there's been many victims of this, not just some of the monuments that have been taken down, but whole classes of people, Trump supporters, Kyle Rittenhouse, to pick a recent one. I mean, it does, that one moment you know, characterizes everything about him. Um, there, there's many examples of people who've been canceled that are the victims of this. So that's ideology, and this is not in keeping with Christianity. Uh, epistemology, questions about uh, what is true and what is not true. Uh, standpoint epistemology is what social justice activists believe in, and the underlying assumption is that different experiences produce different kinds of knowledge, which in turn produce different understandings of reality. So some of you might have been in Bible studies before where you go around the room, they're called Bible studies at least, and everyone, you don't actually ever study the background, everyone just shares their idea. You're like, well, what do you think about this passage? I think it means butterflies. Well, what do you think about this passage? Well, it reminds me of, you know, and you get the most wackadoodle interpretations of, of, of some biblical passages. Anyone, anyone ever been to one of those studies? I mean, yeah, that was like 10 years ago. Well, now it's not individuals, it's, it's social groups, it's social locations. So uh, what's the black interpretation of Genesis 3? What is the Asian, inter- what's the female interpretation? So this is what seminaries are getting into. They're diversifying their theological libraries. They, 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 we got to have uh, people on staff, not, not according to their qualifications in the book of Titus, but according to uh, what race or gender they, they have. And that's how we're going to determine who's the leader at this church. Um, many big, famous Christians are advocating this kind of thing. I mean, Beth Moore comes to mind just now because she was one of the ones advocating on Twitter that we need to diversify our theological libraries. And the whole reason behind it was because, well, Certain groups have more access into truth than others. They have their realities, and those realities must be represented. So I want to go, go through real quickly uh, an, an example of this, and um, it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to use two stick figures. So just, you're going to have to imagine with me for a moment. You're going to have red stick figure and blue stick figure, okay? 
And red stick figure is in the red box. He's trapped in the red box, actually. He can't get out. Blue stick figure is trapped in the blue box. And for red stick figure, everything looks red. For blue stick figure, everything looks blue because red has red glasses, blue has blue glasses. So everything's a shade of red in red world. Now, let's say there's a disagreement between red and blue stick figure. Let's say funding the police. Blue stick figure says, I want to fund the police. Red stick figure says no. And in their worlds, all they can see is their perspective. Now, how do you adjudicate those perspectives? How do you look at them, compare them, and figure out who's right? Which policy is the correct policy? Well, in steps the sociologists or the critical theorists. And they say, you know what? We compared red and blue, and we've determined red is more oppressed. Therefore, we're going to go with red on this one. And guess what blue needs to do? Blue needs to submit themselves to red. They need to shut up and listen, and they need to try to put on some red glasses, try to see everything through red. I know they're stuck in their blue box, but just try. Now, in this scenario, the sociologist becomes God because the sociologist isn't in a box. They don't tell you that, but they're able to transcend the boxes. They're not green, yellow, blue, purple, whatever. They're just neutral. They're just able to see from a bird's eye view and say, you know what, red is better than blue. Now, what gives them that right? Nothing. They just assume it because they're experts. And so what they've done is they put themselves in the position of God, and they've arbitrarily chosen one perspective over another perspective on the basis of their own understanding of oppression. So it's not like the oppressed perspective is actually the perspective represented here. It's the sociologist or the academic or the revolutionary in those high positions who's forwarding this view. In other words, they're not going to Bob on the factory floor and saying, Bob, what do you think should be done about funding the police? They're representing Bob. They're telling you what Bob should think. Now, in the Bible, in the Christian worldview, we have God in that position, not the sociologist. And God has given us revelation through natural revelation and through his word. And guess what? We can understand it. We are not bound. We don't have barriers because of our social location and understanding it. Uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free, anyone can understand what the Word of God teaches on things like justice. And so the effort should be not to put on red glasses or blue glasses, but to put on God's glasses, to understand the world from God's perspective. He's the creator. He made the place, right? And we see all throughout Scripture, truth is so important. In just the book of John, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 8, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. I mean, I could just go on and on. Truth is assumed in Scripture, objective truth. And we see that it is the man of God, according to 2 Timothy, that is adequate, equipped for every good work. It's not the white man, the black man, the purple man. It's the man of God. It's the man who understands. It's the wise man, according to Proverbs. That's who understands truth. You know why? Because they know this. So, There's not a social barrier there, but all around us, we see the world telling us there's social barriers. Believe women, right? Why? Just because they're women. No evidence, no innocent until proven guilty. It's just if someone is is oppressed in the minds of the sociologists, you believe them. How about every time there's a school shooting? On the news afterward, you see someone who survived the school shooting pushing for gun legislation. Well, they're not experts on gun legislation. They just have an experience, and their experience was of oppression. They survived a shooting. What gives them the right to be experts? Well, their experience does according to standpoint theorists. So there's a lot of examples of this I could give. Let me just give one more. Uh, Last year or two years ago, there were many pulpits. I thought it was coordinated. I couldn't believe how many were doing this throughout the country, that instead of the Sunday worship sermon where where the word of God would be exegeted, 
there was a special service, and you'd have minorities, racial minorities, come up front and sit down. This happened at the school I was part of, and just explain what, how the police treat them and what the world's like through their perspective. And this substituted for this. And this happened all throughout the country in many evangelical churches and organizations. The assumption behind this is that we can't know this unless we first have the oppressed perspective. So where does that put the oppressed perspective? It's on, it's on the same level as this. That's the assumption. It's unquestioned. It's inerrant. It's infallible. So there's many examples I could give. That's just a few. Now, the response from a Christian perspective, of course, is that God's justice is universally accessible. He, he has written it on our hearts. He's written it in his word, and his justice is known by the righteous. God gave an objective standard for adjudicating justice from his perspective. And so one of the questions I would ask would be, what would we assume, what would we assume someone is qualified to write instruction manuals for surgeons simply because they underwent an operation? No one wants a brain surgeon who the only qualification they have is they also went through brain surgery, right? Well, they have an oppressed experience, I guess, but they don't know brain surgery. We want people who know the Word of God, not people, people who, who have studied it, who understand it, not people who have just been oppressed, right? So um, it, it's a whole different idea of what truth, in fact, is, and it's self-refuting. The, the uh, third element here is ethics, and um, I think this is a great summary of what socialism is. Treasury Secretary Leslie Shaw said, socialism is the idea that men must succeed equally regardless of aptitude. Men must succeed equally regardless of aptitude. Your skills don't matter. You must have the same outcome. Now, um, I would suggest that just about every item on the Democrat platform, and even a few on the Republican platform, are all about forwarding egalitarianism. Positive rights, preferred pronouns, hate speech laws, global citizenship, the list goes on. And the whole idea here, if I could use an analogy, is that Lady Justice, some of you have been to courtrooms where you see Lady Justice there with a blindfold on, the whole idea is Lady Justice needs to take that blindfold off. And if someone comes into the courtroom and they're oppressed, let's say it's a woman that comes in, you need to treat them differently than you would a man. Or you need, you need to adjust the scales of justice according to the experiences of the people coming in. So that requires Lady Justice, instead of judging the action, they judge the person. It's the opposite of justice. Biblical justice is retributive, meaning criminals are punished for their actual crime. Today's social justice is redistributive, meaning it seeks to reallocate in order to create more equitable outcomes. Exodus 23 is the go-to passage for me on this. If you go to Exodus 23, you will see a list of all the people that we are not to be partial to. So in other words, don't be partial to a wicked man. Don't follow after a multitude. Don't be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Why would it say that? Well, because a poor man might tug on your heartstrings. You want to help them, and so you subvert justice. How about one who hates you? If a donkey comes from one who hates you, then you need to return it, even if they hate you. you, you so it, it, biblical justice is all about uh, making sure that you are treating people impartially. It means that lady justice puts the blindfold on. That's the opposite of social justice. And so we see that God's law is completely out of step with the social justice movement at the very foundation. And, and some of the responses that we should have to this, I think, um, of, of course, going back to God's law would be the first thing, but also just, I, I think, maybe a slippery slope, just asking people, where, how far do you take this thing? What do we deconstruct in order to, to make justice happen? I mean, do we just kill a bunch of people? So, I mean, this is where socialist revolutionaries went in the 20th century. How far do we take this thing? What are you willing to do to make everything equal? 
The thing I want to end on is the difference between the social justice gospel and the biblical gospel. This is the most important element to me. For secular social justice activists, human participation in achieving egalitarian equality is good news. It means the world will eventually overcome inequalities through corporate human action and enter a utopian state. Every time there's an advance made, right? We got Donald Trump out, right? Joe Biden's in, and the first thing you hear out of the mouth of progressives is, but we have so far to go. It's never enough. It's a hamster wheel that never ends. We have so far to go. We have to renew, in the Southern Baptist Convention, to pick one uh, um, denomination, we have to renew our pledge against racism every time we get together. Because it's never enough. It's never satisfied. But there's this hope that one day it will be. One day we'll be able to get there, and we'll get rid of oppression. Now, Jesus taught... Evil comes from within the heart of man. It's not systemic. It's not institutional. It's not out there. It's in here. That's the source of evil, right? This side of heaven, you'll you'll never get rid of it. You'll always have the poor among you. You'll always have inequalities. There's no getting around that. You just have to deal with that, all right? doesn't mean we don't try to help. By the way, uh, I don't know if someone can tell me, and and usually I do this. It's a fun thing, but I'll, I'll give out. If someone gets this answer right, you get a free book. The most charitable state in the United States. Who can tell me? You just raise your hand if you think you know. Okay, you, I'll take two answers. You get a free book. You can take whichever one back there. Okay. <laughs> Someone's got some native pride. It's not California, though, no. <laughs> no? No? Anyone else? You've been listening to my podcast. <laughs> it, either Mississippi or Utah. It changes every year. So between the two of them. So yeah, the progressive states are the least charitable. The more progressive a state is, the more politically to the left, the less they give to charity. That's a, I, didn't, I was like, what? These are the people that are talking about how much they love the poor. Okay. The more conservative politically a state is, generally the, generally, the more they give to charity. And it goes for political conservatives as well. So it's not just states. They, I mean, right, Mississippi is where all the religious bigots are, right? They hate everyone, right? But they're giving to charity. Like, they're also the most impoverished state. How does this make any sense? Well, social justice activists talk a lot about this, this good news they have, that we're going to reach this state. No one's hungry. Everyone has the equal amount. Everything's going to be good. But they never quite reach there. And in the very places that they've run for decades, like Chicago, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, I mean, have, has anyone been to San Francisco lately? Have you seen how good the social justice is taking things there? I mean, I, we, we, we had a, a welcome a few years ago when we traveled there, uh, and someone broke into our car, and, and the police wouldn't even come out. I, I was just like, and there's homeless people everywhere. This is, and the people, the thing is, the people blame Trump for it. I couldn't believe it. And, and so this is, this is the mindset of people that get um, wrapped up in this, um, they, they sort of outsource. They, they, they look at, at everything as being this systemic big problem, and they don't see themselves as, as the solution. They can't just go do charity. It's got to be the government taking some from some people and giving it to others. Stealing from some, giving it. It's got to be redistribution, right? That's, that's the way to solve this whole thing. So that's their good news. And, and everywhere I've been where they've tried to implement this, it hasn't really been that good. But their gospel... This, this, this good news that they have is fused in some circles with the Christian message of good news, and it's been conflated. And I'll give you just a few examples. Desmond Tutu believed the Christian message was that God relied on us to help him make the world all that he dreamed of it being, which meant a diverse, equal, and inclusive place. That's the Christian gospel. 
Um, I could read for you so many of these. Let me just give you one more. Um, Richard Mao, who uh, basically influenced Tim Keller a lot, who was a... um, in charge of Fuller Theological Seminary, he said that the payment that Jesus made through his shed blood was a larger payment than many fundamentalists have seemed to think. He died to remove the stains of political corruption in all forms of political manipulation and exploitation. Now, Richard Mao wrote a book in 1971 called Political Evangelism, and he argues in the book that the atonement extends to impersonal political systems. In other words, you could have a prison system that the gospel has renewed, but no one saved. I mean, this gets you to weird places. This, Eric Mason wrote a book called Woke Church. And basically, he argues in the book that we should look to secular institutions and, and, and get hints from them on how to apply the gospel as Christians because they're doing it right. See, it's weird. You know, people who aren't even Christians apparently are forwarding the gospel. Uh, Paul David Tripp confessed that he was guilty of believing a truncated and incomplete gospel which left out the gospel of God's justice after MLK 50 in 2018. He wrote a lot of books. I had to read them in seminary, but he said he didn't even know the gospel. He only had a part of it. Um, I have a, a number of other quotes from other uh, Christian leaders today, but you're going to hear this a lot, that if you just believe in salvation by grace through faith, that's a half gospel or a partial gospel, and you need to do this political activism thing to have the full gospel. The problem is, that is exactly what Paul argued against in the book of Galatians. Paul said this about the gospel. He said that, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What was happening there? What was happening was the Judaizers came in and said, well, it's great that you have that grace through faith thing. You need a little bit of uh, circumcision, though, to be a true Christian, okay, to have the full, complete picture here of the gospel. Paul says, no. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, that's actually a different gospel. And people who promote that are to be anathema, to be cursed. And he even went to Peter, because Peter was an apostle who was confusing this. He wasn't a false teacher. He was just giving a pass to the false teachers. And Paul came to him and said, you are guilty, and confronted him to his face about this very issue. It's very important we get the gospel right. Paul said in Romans 1, He's not ashamed of the gospel, he said, because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. What is the gospel? The gospel is the work of God. It's not our works. Our works don't factor in. I contributed nothing to my salvation. It's the work of God. And Jesus' gospel of the kingdom and Paul's gospel are the same gospel. It's all about what God is doing to redeem, not about what we... All we can do is mess it up. And that's the beauty of the good news. The beauty of the good news is that it's not up to you and me. Jesus Christ has made a payment. He has actually come in and penetrated this physical world, and he has made it so that we can know him. And we can have, guaranteed to us, a real utopia with him after this temporal world is over, which we're all looking forward to if we know him. So the mixing of law with grace, works, and salvation is another gospel, and that's what the social justice advocates are teaching. Now, what does Christianity offer? I'll close with this. Christianity gives us this, the forgiveness of sins, including true sins of injustice. We can actually gain forgiveness. You can't get that in the social justice movement. You're always, you're, you're always guilty. You're always trying to get yourself out from under guilt. Unity in Christ. We actually have a basis for unity despite gender, class, age, tribe, tongue, nation differences. We come together in this building and we worship God together like we just did. 
We have a fulfilling identity, and it's more than just power relationships. It's more than just I'm an oppressor or I'm oppressed. No, we're so much more than that. We're made in God's image, and he's made us unique. He's put us right where he wants us, into unique families with unique interests. We have a basis for rights and responsibilities God's given us. The government can't tell you what to do with your kids. That's your responsibility. Uh, Same way, uh, you can't go and tell the pastor what to do with his sermon. That's his responsibility. And so there's different spheres of authority that we have civil order in. There's no civil order in social justice. There's just an all-powerful government that takes care of everything. We have roles and responsibilities, so a purpose in life. We know exactly what we're supposed to be. God put us right where he he wanted you, gave you the skills he wanted you to have, uh, helped you know the people that you know, and, and, and this is, a, honestly, this is a joy. You can appreciate the things that God has put in your life. Uh, and, and the trials, are, in fact, we know this as Christians, that even the trials are things that God put in our life for us to grow from and learn from. And then we have a theology of culture, a sense of belonging. We know that not just our skill sets and, and even the things that God has put for us to do, the works he, he ordained, uh, beyond that, uh, the families that we're from, the culture that we inhabit, the language we speak are also all beautiful things. Did you ever think about this? God gave you taste buds. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, it's amazing. He could have just made really flavorful full food and you couldn't even taste it, but he, he went the extra step and he gave you some taste buds. He gave you eyes that appreciate beauty. He could have made something beautiful for himself to see and kept you out of it, but he wanted you to participate in that. And I think one of the biggest things that Christians can do against the social justice movement is have some fun, all right? And that's, that's my favorite. It's not the only thing, but it's one of my favorite things, right? We don't have to look at the world in such a miserable way. Like, it's just all bad. It's just all oppression out there. No, actually, you know, yeah, there's sin. But just guess what? God's also put some really good things out there. And, and we can enjoy those things. And we can thank our creator for those things. So, This is what's missing, I think, from the response that Christians have to this movement. We're not hearing this loud and clear. Instead, there's an attempt to try to syncretize with this movement, and we have the only answer that actually works, that actually provides fulfillment and identity and a sense of belonging and ultimately gets rid of the sins, that pays for the sins that are truly there, that people are trying to get rid of in other ways. So um, do you want to close with prayer real quick and then questions or... Okay, we'll do that then. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the gist of this. Uh, if there's any questions, I know I went long. If there's any questions that people have that you don't get to, I'll be in the back, and I'll be more than happy to, to answer anything if anyone has questions. Uh, thank you, brother, for that. That was, that was wonderful, concise, linear. You want to come down here? Very informative. Um, I'm going to put the mic up here for the questions. So. Um, He's going to do a Q&A now, so um, I'll just exhort you to kind of get to the point. Uh, we want to hear what Brother Jonathan has to say. We don't want to hear about your life story, so uh, get right to the point. Um, go ahead and ask him a question. I'll put the, the mic right up here, and uh, we'll all be able to hear your question, so you can come right up to the mic. If you want a, a formal line, too, that'd be fine. Um, to encourage you guys to come up, I can, I can start with a question, uh, Brother. A um, couple of recommended readings uh, to get us to understand... Um, how this has penetrated conservative Christianity. Um, so things that would be promoting a wrong idea, and then a couple of things that would be refuting that, just a couple of books out there. All right, so woke books. Jesus and John Wayne is one of the big popular ones today. My next 
Yeah, um, and that's, unfortunately, that's one of the ones I've only read excerpts from because I've been so busy, but I, these other ones I have read, uh, Woke Church would be one. Uh, I just read one um, called The Very Good Gospel by Lisa Sharon Harper. It's not very good gospel, but uh, there, there's, it's almost everywhere you look, there's, there's woke books. So, so good books uh, that refute this kind of thing. Hey, the back table has a few. I just noticed that. Um, <laughs> Uh, Adi Robles, a good friend of mine, wrote a great book, I think, that's very simple in layman's terms, uh, called uh, now Social Justice Pharisees. Um, I know Bodhi Bauckham wrote a great book called Fault Line. So there are people responding to this. Uh, it's been a little late. It, it, that's usually the way it works. The progressives push, and it's like five years later, the Christians have their answers, and the progressives are on to something else. But, um, but yeah, there, there are some good resources out there. So I was just curious, you generally, your, if you had any thoughts just from the experts, excerpts from Jesus and John Wayne or the other book I was interested in, Cornell West's Race Matters. Okay, so I haven't read, that's, that's awkward because I haven't read either of those. Um, I, I know a bit about Cornell West. I mean, he's a Marxist. In fact, it's funny, I, someone sent me something for like 20 years ago where he was debating, I think it was Pat Robertson. And what he was saying sounds exactly like what Eric Mason and Jamar Tisby are saying today. And he was, though, on the uber-left, liberal, just crazy land, like no evangelical would listen to Cornell West. Well, now Russell Moore at Union Theological Seminary, like two weeks ago, is sitting on a stage with Cornell West, and they're, you know, sharing common cause. Well, Cornell West is a heretic. I mean, he doesn't have the true gospel. He's a social gospel guy. And he also, um, he's totally on the LGBT bandwagon. So it's just, it's, it's strange how the new alliances are forming. Um, I can't say him a lot about his book, though. As far as Jesus and John Wayne... So it's funny, when I was writing um, Social Justice Goes to Church, I referenced that at the beginning as one of the, I, I say that there's, book, every year there's a book published for like the last 15 years, taking the religious right to task, okay? And so I just mentioned, yeah, you know, this year's one is Jesus and John Wayne. And I, I never knew it was going to become as popular as it actually became. Uh, I never had heard of Kristen Dumez. Christian Dumez, though, admits that she has been heavily influenced by some of the people I talked about, uh, Foucault and Derrida and the Frankfurt School. She recommends these people. Read Herbert Marcuse, Frankfurt School member, to gain insights. And so she's been influenced by that. And then she goes out and she writes a book. And basically, the book is trying to argue that uh, Christian patriarchy, this, she's sort of more of a feminist, so like male Christian patriarchy has just been part of the fabric of evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity for decades, and it's this, that they've basically taken Jesus and they've redefined him into this uh, patriotic American figure. And so she tries to line up her, you know, Jerry Falwell and all these other folks, she tries to line them up and say, here's my case, here's why, uh, here's the references that prove Christianity is compromised from, uh, from, from the side of patriarchy and Christian nationalism. So um, that's, that's sort of a summation of what I understand her book to be. It's still on my list of, of books I need to review. Um, but yeah, as far as like refuting that kind of thing, that, that thinking, I think um, you know, the, the, some of the basic things I just talked about as far as ideology and epistemology, you're going to find that in there. She, she has to write from this perspective of uh, this feminist perspective in order for her arguments to work. She has to cherry pick the historical record in order for arg- her arguments to work. She has to kind of overemphasize certain things. And so once you, you, you try to create a paradigm that takes into account all in available information, you don't come up with her, her narrative. And, and that's how I was trained as a historian is, you know, when you have an event or something you're tracing, you don't 
uh, try to cherry pick the record and then just come up with an argument, you try to take into account all information and then, uh, and then rightly um, interact with it. So that's, I think, the problem that she has is she, she just takes certain figures, certain quotes, certain things, and then she, she's got a preconception of what Christianity is, and then she just finds the things that will support it. So it's kind of like uh, when someone's preaching and it's, it's a sermon searching for a text, you know, and let's just take all these things out of context. That's what she's doing, and only she's applying it to history. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I have a kind of a, a babe, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater question. I've, I've uh, People I looked up to and had, uh, listened to and admired and learned from, uh, you know, like a, a Keller, a Moeller, and a Piper and all, uh, that they've been poisoned somewhat by the, or influenced by the culture. And um, maybe you could answer this in terms of like Abraham Kuyper. How, how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater, can you still uh, profit from their stuff and without being overly critical or being critical enough or, or, or just you just forget it because it's too much work? Yeah. What, was the, what did Kuiper have to do with that? I'm just curious. Oh, because uh, I remember you said something about conflate. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought that you thought he conflated the... Um, the the gospel and law or something. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but yet uh, he's a big hero of like Doug Wilson or whatever. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, I I mean I'm not a Kuiper scholar. I've read some of his stuff, like the Stone Lectures and 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 some of his other writings. My so the the thing about Kuiper is it's like a lot of historical figures. Uh, there's like three different versions of Kuiper out there, right? Like there's like, like kind of like a lot of famous figures are like like Abraham Lincoln, right? There's like three different Abraham Lincolns and everyone's got like a different conception of who he was. Kuiper's the same way and the social justice activists will take his common grace idea and take certain quotes from him in which he suggests that the basis for, um, uh, for, for redemptive grace is common grace and they'll take that, and then you have Richard Mao, who's like a, basically a Kuiper guy from Calvin College. He's like, well, I got my ideas from Kuiper, and that's how we can work towards extending the atonement to impersonal political systems. So the Gospel Coalition is basically that today. It's just a neo-Kuiperian. Um, they, they take that interpretation, and that's their whole engagement of culture. Is like, we're going to do this. The, everything's a gospel issue, so we're going to apply the gospel here, here, and here, and, and it's all common grace, but they're... They're, they're conflating common grace and, and uh, redemptive grace or special grace. So um, then you have guys like Doug Wilson and others who uh, look at Kuiper, and they, they're kind of one-kingdom guys, and they just love the fact that Kuiper said that, um, that, that basically every, his, his view of lordship, that every single item, every molecule in the, in the universe, God claims is his. He says, mine. And so they, they see, they just take that concept and that common grace and they say, well, we should, as Christians, be involved in all these different things. But the thing they don't do that I haven't seen them doing is they don't say that that's the gospel. That's the difference, I think, is they say, well, that's just being a good Christian and exercising Christian ethics and culture. So, um, so I'm, as far as Kuiper goes, I don't really know what to say other than Kuiper's, there's things Kuiper says that make him sound socialist. There's things Kuiper says that makes him sound like a crazy right winger. He's just said a lot of stuff, and, um, and, and we change throughout our lives, too. Like, you could probably take quotes from me at different periods of time and cherry-pick them and make them sound differently. So, so people are using—it's kind of like in the Reformation when Catholics and Protestants both claimed Augustine. Catholics were like, no, Augustine's our guy. And then Protestants were like, no, he's our guy. And so I think the same thing's happening with Kuiper. And, uh, 
So I, I wouldn't be against quoting Kuiper or using Kuiper. Just, you, the thing you just got to watch out for is you don't want to buy into the idea that uh, we are doing gospel work, in other words, like proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel, applying the gospel, when it's like BLM protests. Like that's not, you're not evangelizing when you're marching in a BLM protest, but some of these guys think they are. And so, it's, I don't know, it's weird. Can I, is that a very you know, rich theological term? It's just weird. So, I don't know if that helps. I hope so, yeah. Hi there. Hi. Um, so, how far do you think we can partner or partake in the works of secular conservatives, Catholics, like this whole anti-cultural Marxism camp has strange bedfellows and Catholics don't know the gospel, like among even just the staff at the Daily Wire. You have papists and Jeremy Boring, whatever he is now, and um, Orthodox Jew, you know, Ben Shapiro. Mm. How far can we partner with them in anti-cultural Marxism when we don't agree with what God has said? That's a really good question. Uh, so the term is co-belligerency. So you have a common goal, and you want to accomplish something, let's say, like ending abortion. That's where this often comes up. And so we both, let's say Catholics and Protestants, both want to end abortion. And, and so how do they accomplish that goal without compromising their core beliefs? And um, so, so I think, this is where I draw the line. I think um, Scripture says, what fellowship has light to do with darkness? That term fellowship means what do they have in common uh, as far as their, uh, the core, I would say the core doctrines of Christianity, the, the gospel itself, uh, we can never give the impression that we have fellowship with a Catholic. We can't, like, like we have actually, we're the same religion, where they have the same message that we have. On the gospel, they just don't. And so that, there are situations where you'll have, like, um, I've seen at pro-life events, uh, where I, and I'm uncomfortable with this, where you have a prayer, let's say, and you know, the Catholic person gives the prayer, and, and it's Protestants, it's all, maybe it's even Buddhists, who knows? It's all these people that are pro-life, and they're all, they're, they're all kind of giving assent to this Catholic prayer. I, I feel uncomfortable with that. I, I, I would want to have co-belligerency, but I wouldn't want to ever give the impression that we endorse that, that we're, that we're praying along with that too. We also believe in Mary. And so, no, like, that, that's where, and you have to draw those lines, I think, very clearly. Otherwise, you do, you do get kind of wrapped up in stuff um, that you shouldn't be. Now, as far as like the Daily Wire and Ben Shapiro and listening to those guys, I mean, you can certainly get some analysis, but you just got to be aware these aren't Christians. So they might be able to apply logic very well on certain things, but they're not going to, there's going to be something missing, I think, from their analysis because they don't know Jesus. And, and so even the things that they say that are right, they, they can't even explain to you probably why they're right because they don't have the, the God who creates right and wrong there. So, um, so that, that would be my answer. You, you, know, let's, you know, let's get together and let's vote out people who love abortion and evil things, but let's make sure that we also keep our convictions at the same time and never give the impression that we're, um, we, we agree with them on those fundamental things. So, yeah. Uh, that was a great uh, talk, lecture, whatever, by the way. I really appreciate it. I had a question that's Thank probably going to be more towards your opinion. Um, if I think you, maybe you discussed them, uh, Jake Gretchen Machen and Christianity and liberalism, like from 100 years ago, and, and now we're kind of seeing like this new movement that really isn't a new movement. Do you think it's going to die out? Like we're going to see the churches that have embraced this like end up like empty and... It's already happening. Yeah, it's like, already happening. Like, yeah, we saw that. 
back then, do you think that will happen today? All these churches that go woke will it, it, eventually just yep. diminish and disappear? Or? Um, social justice is the off-ramp from Christianity, to put it blunt. Think about it this way. If your message is, hey, the church is this racist, sexist, homophobic organization, and it wasn't until two seconds ago that we started to get things right, um, who wants to join that? I mean, I could do better activism in the Democrat Party or some liberal organization. Why would I want to be part of the church? And, and so, I mean, it'd be like the Ku Klux Klan saying like, hey, I know you, you think we're all racist, but you know what? We got some new leadership and uh, we got some great programs and music and come on in. No one wants to be part of that. That's ridiculous, right? So when, when you portray the church that way as this horrible, evil thing that just now recently has great leadership and we're going to forward social justice finally, everyone just kind of leaves and they go forward social justice somewhere else. And so I've seen this with personal friends, but I also know this from uh, just, just there, there haven't been a lot of stats around this, but just traveling the country, I don't know how many churches I've been to that are the results of every other compromised church like losing people and going to the one church that's still solid. That's happening everywhere in this country, just, just about. And churches forming from splits that are now bigger than the churches that form them. COVID really accelerated this quite a bit because people just wanted to find a church that was open. But um, I, I keep hearing that some of these big churches are just bleeding members right now over this issue. And the, the weird thing, to pick one example, David Platt's church, I don't even know what their size is now. It's like a third of what it was before COVID, I think. Like, how in the world do, do they keep sustaining this? But they're, they're obstinate, they're stubborn, they're going to keep going down the same road, and it's just causing them to bleed more and more members. And, and oftentimes, social justice stuff is often associated with corruption, I've noticed. So people who, um, and, and, and it makes sense, because if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to gain the grace, the good grace of the world, then you're, you're probably trying to promote yourself and get power and authority for you and platform for you. And that's just going to attract personalities that want corruption. And so there's all kinds of problems now in those churches where leadership moral failures. Um, so I, I don't know to what degree, no, like Barna hasn't done like a big poll on this or a study that I'm aware of, but I do know that Christianity, the, the numbers are significantly diminishing, and the woke churches are getting hit pretty hard. Uh, and even, in, we were just, in, we're in Los Angeles. I mean, Grace Community Church is like busting at the seams. I mean, so many people are like leaving all their surrounding churches because of their wokeness, and they're, they're going there. So it, it's, it's, it's a shuffling, and I don't think the dust has settled yet. It, it's still, you know, we're waiting to see what's going to really happen. So, yeah. So, and and it's great that you brought up Jake Gresham Asian because that's the exact same thing that happened. All those denominations that said, "Hey, we're going to just partner with evolution and modernism and higher criticism," they all died. They all just died. You know, PCUSA. Um, so, yeah. Hi, thanks for coming. Thank you. It's loud. Um, hey, uh, I so more of on a ground level. Like, if you're, I just want to know your tactics when you're talking to someone. Is this issue, it's a very involved issue. It's got social justice, egalitarianism, you know, critical race theory. There's a lot of components to this, and it's really penetrated the culture. I'm wondering how you approach the issue and get to the heart of the issue when you're trying to talk to someone that's kind of bringing up these ideas, because they, they come up in conversation quite a lot, at least, you know, around, uh, you know, people I work with or people I know. Um, there's people that are fully bought in, and then there's people that are just kind of, you know, hearing about it for the first time and then they're they're kind of like oh yeah how, how do you how do you just how do you what are your tactics like how do you get to the heart of the issue for that and then on a second note how do you talk to a brother in christ that is starting to buy into some of these uh 
these, these lies, these fallacies? Well, I'm not perfect, but what I try to do is model whatever I do after what Jesus did. Jesus made a distinction between the crowds and then the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the spiritual leaders, right? And so um, what I see in, in Jesus, call, especially as his ministry uh, you know, develops, he calls out the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy specifically. And they try to you know, paint him in a certain way. They try to, um, to, to uh, really catch him in something, to try to make the crowds turn on him. And what does he do every single time? He, he, he doesn't usually even answer their questions. He just chal- he goes aggressive. He's actually very, he's not very winsome. He just goes, he calls them hypocrites. Uh, you know, your proselytes are twice as much the sons of hell as you are. I mean, it's, it's not very nice language sometimes. But he can, he, he's able to do that. He, and, and of course, being the son of God really gives you an advantage. So it's, it's harder for us maybe to make those distinctions. But you do have your Pharisees, your true hardcore believers, and then you have the, the crowds. You have the people that are, buying into the Pharisees, what they're saying, but they're not, they're not the leaders of it. And, and I think you talk to them differently. Um, and so if it's a, a dyed-in-the-wool social justice warrior, I'll give you an example. I went to a, a protest when I was at Southeastern. Uh, that was, it was a monument that, um, that, that it was a, con- a Confederate monument at one of these big major colleges. And they were having a sit-in. And, um, and it was on the radio, I heard it. And I thought, wow, that's great. If you go preach the gospel to them, they can't leave because they lose if they leave. So they're a captive audience. So I went and I brought them some Gatorade and they thought I was all on their side. And then I sat down with them and they're all in the circle, you know, the hippie circle. And uh, it was the whitest group I've ever seen. And I asked them, uh, I said, you know, I said, I want to have a conversation about what you're doing. And they're, oh, we love to have conversations. And I said, why don't we take the protest of Planned Parenthood down the street? where they were aborting three times as many black babies as white babies. And it was like a bomb went off. And, and I was there like three more hours. But one of the things I noticed, um, it's true, I had professors coming out. There were just, everyone was like, there's a bigot on campus, go argue with them. And, um, and I like that a lot better than like Twitter or Facebook, right? Because those places, you can't, it's just, you, you can never, this you have real people in front of you and you can see their expressions and you can communicate with them. And so what I was trying to do when I was there, there was the loudmouths, right? The Pharisees in my mind, like the real true hardcore believers. And I would just call them out on their hypocrisy. And I mean, that was the first thing that was hypocritical to me. Like, you don't care about Planned Parenthood and what they're doing, really? Like, you're, you're, you're big hypocrites. Um, but then there were the people who were just kind of there because they thought, well, I'm supposed to be here because I'm a loving person and this is a bad monument. And, and for them... I remember after some of the, the loudmouths left, um, we had some honest conversations just about, uh, about why they were against this. And, and it turns out, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to most of you, that many of them, I think the followers, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are looking for something. They have issues with identity and a sense of belonging. They moved all around the country. They have no place they can call their own. Their parents are divorced. They don't have a family. Uh, they, they are confused about whether they're a man or a woman half the time. I mean, it's just, it, they're a mess. Um, and I remember one guy in particular, we were talking about marriage and family, and, and he was saying, well, what, you know, in regards to abortion, what would I do if we didn't have abortion? I don't want to make a mistake and then get someone pregnant and they have to be punished with a baby. And I said, well, you could just get married. And then that's not a problem. And he looked at me like I had three heads, like, you know, what's that? And, um, and so after this whole thing went down and I was there a few hours, I, I saw on social media the next day 
uh, actually one of the, the people contacted me who I had been talking with, and she wrote this very nice post. It was really interesting. It was on Facebook, and she said, today we had a seminary student come out and talk to us, and, and, and she, just, she said how much she appreciated it. She hadn't even heard my perspective. Most of these people don't know that Christians exist, let alone conservatives. Um, when, when, in fact, when I was there, a, a woke church came and started singing hymns you know, to help them, and no, none of them were participating. They thought it was kind of hokey, but the church was like, we're with you, you know, and then left, and, and they didn't give them the gospel, nothing. And, but she, but this, this protester wrote about how basically the whole reason she was there was a hang-up with her dad. It was, it was, it wasn't, they weren't mad at a piece of metal or, you know, soldiers from hundreds of years ago. She was mad at her dad, and it was a way to kind of go invent and take that out. And I think if we, if you understand that, that these people are looking for something who aren't the diehard believers but are just kind of going along, then you can, com- you can approach them with compassion and, and you can get some traction, I think, um, uh, that way. And, and so the second part of that was, what about a Christian? So I did have a Christian friend when I was at Southeastern who I, my wife and I both were like, this guy's woke. Like, this, he's, he's already on the progressive bandwagon and he's just going to go full, uh, full bore into this. And I just spent a lot of time with him and just asked very challenging questions. And... Um, and now he's just as much against social justice as I am. And I'm not taking credit for that, but I think um, I just put thoughts in, I helped put thoughts in his head that he hadn't had before about the issue. And, and he knew, and then the other thing was, this is big, all right? If, I don't, if you don't hear me say anything else, it's really big, I think. He saw me use my own personal finances to help him and others. I, he was even going through a hard time, and I just gave him some money. And I think for him, you know, this, this whole the whole engine behind this that attracted him was we're going to be able to help the poor. And he's like, this guy's against the social justice movement, but he, he cares about the poor. And our example means a, a great deal. So like my dad, uh, you know, growing up, he'd give money to people who came and needed gas or, or he'd fill up their tank usually. He didn't want to just give them money. But if we do more of that in, in charity and it's visible and people can see our good works, glorify our Father in heaven, those accusations are hard to stick. It's hard to be like, that guy just hates the poor. He, he, he's, he hates minorities. It's like, I just gave 50 bucks to a minority who was, you know, or I, I, I housed someone that needed house, housing or I helped someone. And so meeting real tangible needs in contrast to stealing from neighbors to meet those needs, I think is a, a great example that we can set. So, yeah.